Let us pray. I'm more eternal and everlasting Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, majestic in all your ways, compassionate, merciful, patient with us, a good God. Thank you for your goodness that you continue to show us in this area as you continue to direct the storms and winds to do your bidding. We are grateful that you continuously spare us. We have gathered this morning in obedience to your instruction that we should do so, especially as we see the evil does draw near, and we know we are in a tumultuous times, but at the same time, our confidence is to know that underneath are the everlasting arms that sustain us. So we are grateful, Heavenly Father, that you are the God of gods, Lord of lords. There's no power above you. You are the supreme one. For this, we are grateful that we belong to your family because you have so chosen us and you have worked it out by sending your son to offer himself so that we can be elevated to sonship. So we are grateful. As we've gathered this morning, to study a portion of your word, we are aware, painfully, that the human mind is incapable of understanding anything that is spiritual or even focusing on something that is spiritual, apart from the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So it is our request now that God the Holy Spirit, the perfect communicator, will speak to us and allow us to hear precisely what you have for us this morning. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. We move now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, through chapter 11, verse 1. Where we'll be dealing with believers' freedom in Christ. It reads, verse 23 reads, Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising question of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it. If someone, if someone believer, invites you to a meal, and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising question of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you, and for conscience sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience. If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble. 
whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now there is a sense that we can assert that this section of First Corinthians is a summation of the two topics the apostle had addressed in the preceding chapters with more definitive response to these two topics. Now the apostle dealt with the matter of food sacrifice to idols in the eighth chapter where he indicated that dealing with such a topic requires differentiating knowledge and love, having knowledge about the supernatural beings, and being governed by care for others. Now in the preceding section of 1 Corinthians 10 verses 14 through 22, the apostle dealt with avoidance of idolatry for believers that in effect prohibits going to the temples of idols to eat uh, in them. He advanced three general reasons to avoid idolatry which are the significance of the Lord's Supper, the nature of sacrifices that in case of pagans expose them to demons and the impact of idolatry on one's fellowship with God. The apostle, having prohibited absolutely eating sacrificial food at the temple meals because it is something that involves worshipping of demons. In our present passage, he gave a specific Recommendation of how to deal with meat sacrificed to idols that were sold in marketplace for consumption, either in private homes and so forth, or in their temples as well. Now, specifically, the apostle dealt with how a believer should respond to such food when invited to the house of an unbeliever. That's the first topic he has been dealing with. The second topic had to do with rights one has in Christ. Although his focus was his right as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He indicated that he gave up some of his rights in order uh, I mean the rights to be supportive for the preaching of gospel. He I gave it up in order to advance the gospel of Christ. Now at the same point, it's also implied in what we have in the section of 1 Corinthians uh, that we are about to study. Thus then, we are correct in asserting that this section before us is indeed a summation of the two topics the apostle had previously stated, but that we now have more specific instructions in this section regarding the two topics we mentioned. Now the passage before us is no doubt concerned with freedom we have in Christ. Now it is interesting 
that the apostle went from warning against idolatry back to the subject of freedom. Now the thing that makes this interesting to me is that the Holy Spirit probably wants us to recognize that the concept of freedom among human beings could become idolatrous. The concept. In other words, people not understanding the fallen nature or the effect of sin on human will may have the tendency of worshipping the concept of human freedom. In other words, people worship the idea of freedom, even they don't realize above God. You see, there are those who will not listen to reason when they think that their freedom is being infringed upon or they won't give serious thoughts to the scripture because they are preoccupied with their freedom or their freedom or their rights. Now such individuals fail to recognize that truths and freedom must go hand in hand as implied in the declaration of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 8 verse 32. John What we are uh, making the point we are making is freedom and truth must go hand in hand. If you separate one from the other, you have a problem. Now this is what the Lord says. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now here truth refers to absolute reality about God or Jesus Christ and special revelation of God as seen in Jesus' work and teaching. So understanding the scripture, for example, will cause a person to ensure that selfishness is not driving is not a driving factor in pursuit of personal freedom. They're not governed by your own selfish interest. Now selfishness causes us not to think about others, but only ourselves, so that we will not act in love. In other words, you think your freedom is being uh, infringed upon, and you kick the, the concept of love out of the way, because you are not so occupied with yourself. So you don't want to think about love anymore. It doesn't matter. All that matters is the so-called my freedom is being infringed upon. Anyway, that aside, the apostle begins our section with what I describe as a prelude to the concept of freedom, since the apostle again quoted the Corinthians with his own rejoinders. In other words, his response to the quotation and an instruction about being concerned with the good of others. Now this, this prelude the apostle gives in verses 23 and 24. 
This is followed by the freedom a believer in Corinth had regarding meat offered for sale in their market. The conditions when to eat or not to eat such meat. Now the conditions the apostle was concerned were the conscience of unbelievers in Corinth and God's glory as the apostle discussed in verses 25 through 31. He ended the section by drawing attention to his pattern of application of the freedom in Christ with an invitation to the Corinthians and, and so to all believers to imitate his pattern of application of his freedom in Christ that is governed by his desire for others to be saved or to gain salvation in Christ. Now both the implication and invitation to imitate the apostle or the pattern I will describe them in verses chapter uh, verses 32, 33 of the time chapter then the first verse of the 11th chapter. I mean we will talk about it maybe uh, sometime but the issue is you have to remember that the breaking of chapters they are artificial. They are done by uh, scholars to help us navigate through the scripture. But really if we are not to do that that's why I move to verse 1 of chapter 11 because it's still dealing with the same thing that began in verse uh, 23. Anyway, the summary of the passage that we are about to study that we gave implies that there is a general message the apostle wanted to convey to the Corinthians, of course, and so to all the church. Now the message is that a Corinthian believer in Christ has the right to eat any meat offered to him either in market or in private homes of unbelievers. But that that right should be guided by the conscience of unbelievers. God's glory and concern for salvation of others. Based on this message, we then tell all the specific message we believe the Holy Spirit wants us to convey to you as a believer in Christ. This message then is this. Use your freedom in Christ in such a way to advance the spiritual needs of others. Again, this is what I say. Use your freedom in Christ in such a way to advance the spiritual needs of others. Now we will expand on this message based on three responsibilities you have as a believer pertaining to the concept of freedom that you have in Christ given in the passage that we are about to study. Now the first responsibility you have as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ derived from our passage says that you should understand that not everything you have right to do 
helps others spiritually, but you are required to seek the good of others. Now, sometime when we study these things, I wonder how many of us that actually think through what we're studying. This is what they say is that you should understand that not everything you have the right to do hates others spiritually, but you are required to seek the good of others. And you should ask yourself, do I really do that? Do I seek the good of others? Or am I so much into myself that I don't think about others? Everything revolves around me. I don't think about others. And that, you will see, if you did that, you will take a different perspective in how you conduct yourself. Anyway, this responsibility that we have given is derived from what the apostles stated in verses 23 and 24. There are two parts to this responsibility that demand our attention. The first part is understanding that not everything you have right to do helps others spiritually. That's the first part. I break it into two. Just understand everything you have right to do does not help others. Not all, just because you have the right to do it doesn't mean it's, it's going to help other people. And of course, in recess, it also means it may not even help you. You think you, it helps you, but it may not. Now, this first part, though, is derived from a statement that is repeated twice in verse 23. And after it, the two clauses in the same verse. That's, they are the basis for this first half of the responsibility. Now, this statement is really, everything is permissible. That's repeated twice. Everything is permissible. Now, this is the second time, though, in this epistle to the Corinthians, that the apostle has penned this sentence. The first was in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. First Corinthians First Corinthians chapter six verse twelve reads Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, there are two differences between 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12 and 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 and verse 23. The first is the phrase, for me, for me, that occurs twice in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, chapter 6 verse 12. That phrase does not occur in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23. Although, some later Greek manuscripts inserted it contrary to the most ancient manuscripts that omit the phrase. Now the second is in the last clause of each passage. See the last clause of 1 Corinthians 6-12 reads 
But I will not be mastered by anything. By anything. I will not be mastered by anything. While the last clause of First Corinthians 10 verse 23 reads, But not everything is constructive. Same sentence in the first, everything is permissible, everything is permissible. But here we say the difference is in that clause, or one of the differences. Doesn't, what we do is I will we'll review what we considered in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12 regarding the sentence, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Now, when I say review, it's intended so that to refresh your mind, but also to remind you of this one fact, which I have heard from some of you, uh, those who are serious. I mean, uh, to me, these are people are considered very serious. Although they come, we, we study on Wednesdays mon- uh, and Sunday. So they keep record of those, they try to review that. But then they are going back to some of the things we studied in the past and they listen through them one more time. As many times as they need. Now, those who do that, when I have conversations, some of them say, I was listening, I heard it. Where was I when you told that? I said, yeah, right. You were here. But the thing is, that's why I keep telling you, just because you are sitting here, does not mean you are understanding what I'm telling you. doesn't mean that. You hear me sometimes, but in order to sink in, you must go home and spend some time. And I have tried to, I've used every illustration I can, remember. I don't know of anyone in any field, or those who went to college. I can't recall, I don't know whether you have such a, a magnetic memory, as they say, that you go to class, you don't take notes, you go home, and you go for exam, and you make straight A's. That would be nice, wouldn't it be? And I said, I don't know why you think you can come and sit down here. You don't take notes. You don't go back and review what we studied. And you think you got it. You don't. You're just kidding yourself. So when I say review, it doesn't really mean you remember everything we taught in the past. But it's a way. The Bible tells us very clearly that repetition is a way to teach. We want things to be repeated to us in an academic environment, for example, but not in church. And I wondered to people, which is more important, the academic world or the church? Because if you, depending on how you answer it, you know where your spiritual life is all about. But anyway, so we're going to review. As we review this, in most cases, it may sound to you as you've never heard it before. Anyway, the sentence of First Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 23. Everything is permissible. It's literally, all things are lawful. All things are lawful. Literally. Now there are two problems associated with this sentence that as we stated appears twice in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. A first problem is whether this is a quotation or a statement. Now a minority of commentators take the position that it is a statement of the apostle as reflected in the translation of the authorized version that is the King James Version and the New American Standard Bible. 
However, majority of the commentators take the sentence as a quotation so that majority of our English versions put a quotation mark on the sentence as you find in the NIV. Now even then, there's no agreement among the majority commentators as to whom the apostle was quoting. Some take the view that the apostle was quoting an attitude that some in Corinth had developed based on the apostle's teaching. While others say that he was quoting an argument or a slogan used by the Corinthians. Now it's difficult to be certain whether the apostle referenced an attitude that developed among some Corinthians based on his teaching or a slogan used by the Corinthians to justify their attitude towards meat offered to idols. Nonetheless, it is not necessary to be certain about the source of the quotation since the point of the quotation is simply to indicate an abuse of what is true for the believers who enjoy freedom in Christ. Now you see, the apostle had taught elsewhere the freedom that believers enjoy in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. Galatians Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 And hold on to that chapter 5 I'll pick up another verse from it Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 reads It is for freedom that Christ has set us free Stand firm then And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery So that's talking about our freedom in Christ He said hold it firm then let somebody enslave you once more. Of course, the apostle warned the Galatians, and so to all believers, regarding the abuse of freedom in Christ, as we read in Galatians 5, verse 13. Verse 13. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 reads. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. <laughs> this is, I mean, if you listen to a whole lot of people in this country, you understand this thing. Most times when people are talking about their freedom, they're not, they're just thinking about, I want to do whatever I want to do. In most cases, it's not something good. So, it says they want to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. See, that's how we use our freedom in Christ. To serve one another in love. So anyway, of the two interpretations regarding the sentence, everything is permissible, I agree with those who interpret it as a quotation that is more likely a slogan used by the Corinthians to justify their view about meat 
sacrifice to idols as they misapplied what the apostle taught about freedom in Christ. They misapplied it. Now this is because although there is no Greek indicator of a quotation but the use of contrasting conjunction but that he uses twice in 1 Corinthians 10.23 seems to imply that the apostle was countering a quotation or a slogan that is a misunderstanding of what he taught regarding uh, freedom believers enjoy in Christ. In other words, he's saying, okay, everything is permissible. He's quoting them. But, in other words, yes, you're saying that, but here's the fact. This is what he should be. So this is why I believe he was just quoting something that they're using to misapply what he taught them. Now, a second problem of the sentence, everything is permissible other than the interpretation, or literally, all, all things are lawful, is the word everything. Everything. Or, all, depending on the English version that you have, that implies an absolute sense in which every and anything is permissible or lawful, whether the apostle quotes a slogan used by the Corinthians or an application of what he taught. The problem here is, this is why we study, when I'm, like I said, we don't preach here. In studying, look at, we say, the word everything, depending on the English version you have. Some say, all things are permissible, depending on the English version. Now, so, that word everything, or all, causes a problem. I know it's, uh, many times we don't realize that uh, we need to look at words when people talk, when people say things. You need to listen carefully by the words they use, unless people are not aware of the meaning of the words that they're using. Anyway, so that creates a problem because the kind of problem here it says all things, everything, absolutely. And the kind of problem that creates, as we're going to spend. Uh, probably the rest of the first half of our study this morning, just looking at that, the implication of that word, all or every. Now, the problem is, it creates, we can see it in such things as what people say about God. In other words, uh, the problem is similar to the general statement many, many of us make, which is, when we talk, we want to say that God is all-powerful. We say God is omnipotent. And some say, by that they mean that God can do anything. That's what people will say. Omnipotent means that God can do anything. Now, we know that people can quote the scripture and say, yeah, we're in line with the scripture when we say that. An example of that is Job chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. Job, they just look at that. That's one good example where someone can say, Yeah, I, I'm right. Look at what the Bible tells me. Job 
chapter 42 verses 1 and 2 It reads Then Job replied to the Lord I know that you can do all things No plan of yours can be thwarted So you see he says Job even admitted I know you can do all things okay Now similar assertion is supported by what the Lord Jesus stated in Matthew Chapter 19, verse 26. Matthew, chapter 19, verse 26. Matthew, chapter 19, verse 26. It is, Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now so, somebody put this to passage and say, yeah, you see, God can do all things. So, but that means that God is so powerful, omnipotent, he can do all things. <laughs> okay. Well, really, to use these two passages to define God's omnipotence, to me that God can do anything causes a difficult problem considering God's other attributes. Now let's, let's consider some of uh, examples that scholars, those who spend time thinking about these things, have identified to show the difficulty of such understanding that God can do all things. Now, the first illustration is, is this. If God can do anything, then he, in theory, could create a creature that is uncontrollable by him. He can do anything. He can do that. In theory, now. Now, this, of course, if that happened, will contradict the attribute of sovereignty that God is over all. That will contradict it. Take another example. If God can do anything, then He would, in theory, in theory now, be capable of sin. Because He can do anything, right? Such as lying, but that is contrary to His moral perfection, such as not being able to lie. As stated in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Titus Titus Chapter 1, verse 2. It is a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God 
who does not lie, promise before the beginning of time. See, see, God. If 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 God can do anything, potentially He could lie. That's what that's what the uh, scholars are put as an example to correct our thinking. So potentially in theory now, but that will contradict His character, which He cannot lie. Doesn't. It is not quite accurate to say that omnipotence of God means that he can do anything. It's not quite correct. Rather, when we say God is omnipotent, we mean he can do anything he wills in accordance with his nature. That's the difference. He can do anything he wills. According to his nature. It's not everything, but every, anything he wills according to his nature. That would be a proper way to put it. Because of the word all has implication. So, we must admit then that it's not everything in absolute uh, sense that God can do. In an absolute sense. Now, he can do things that will conform to his nature and to his holy will. Now, if we put this kind of limitation in the declaration that God can do all things, then it should be clear that when the apostle quoted the sentence that was studied in 1 Corinthians 10.23, that sentence, everything is permissible. Or literally all things are lawful. He could not have meant all in an absolute sense. Or everything in an absolute sense. Now this, see this is, that's what we need to spend time to demonstrate. That everything doesn't mean any and everything you think about. So we can illustrate this by uh, first examining a word and an expression used in the Greek, in the Greek sentence. In other words, it's a word we're going to look at in detail, and then we follow it by examining an expression in that sentence. A first word the apostle used that indicates he could not have been thinking in an absolute sense is the word everything or all things in the literal translation that I gave you. Now the literal phrase all things is translated from a Greek word that means all, every, each, whole, but in the Greek form, used in our passage, it means all things, everything. It's a Greek word, it's really an adjective, pas, P-A-S, but we have it in the plural here, pata. So, it becomes all things or everything. That's the way to translate it in the English. Now, quite often, we encounter the word all or everything. When we do, we actually think in terms of absolute totality. Probably because we think a word has an inherent meaning 
instead of recognizing that it's the context that determines the meaning of a word. Most words, they don't really have an inherent meaning. You have to look at the context to understand the meaning of whatever the word that you're looking at. But many people don't think that. They think a word, once you see a word, it must mean that the same everywhere. Now, such misunderstanding really has a serious consequence. For example, it creates a problem for many in not accepting specific teachings of the scripture. Because people say, well, doesn't the Bible not, does it not say all? Oh, like I've just explained to you in Job 42. If you tell somebody, well, God cannot do all things. They say, man, you blasphemy. Look at Job, they quote it, or Matthew 19. I mean, they, what are you talking? Because they don't understand that words have meaning within the context. Because they say, it says everything or all here. So what are you saying? Now, this is the same thing. And I use this, I beat this horse all the time. Because I know that mo- many of you, you run into people, you talk about the election, they say, no, that's not true. And if they, you know, those who are well versed in the Bible, they quote you a passage. Say, how can that be true if this is the, what the Bible says? And so I always like to go back to take one of those passages in order to beat clearly that the word all does not always mean all. Now that sounds, uh, you know, uh, very difficult to conceive, but one of the uh, passages I go is where people go and say, because of this passage, to say that God chose some people or election cannot be true. What passage? Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9. Now, I know it's, uh, it's, it's hard for uh, you to flip pas- uh, pas- uh, passages, but uh, this is, in my judgment, this is one of those passages that you really need to get a, 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 a handle on. So that means go back and listen to this religion and get a hold of it. Take my note, read it, get a hold of it. Because if you run into people who seriously reject election, they are going to quote you this passage. Seriously. So you should get a handle of it so you know what it's really saying and be able to explain it to someone who is going to doubt what you're telling them. Now it says, there's a thing. Well, the argument, of course, is that they say that uh, God is not willing for anyone to perish. So how can you say that? It is, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish. You say, ha, you see? Anyone. So how is he not wanting anyone to perish? How can he choose some people ahead of time? Because he's saying anyone. Now look at them, he said, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, everyone should come to repentance. Because never mind the fact that if God wants everyone uh, to be saved, for example, and doesn't want anyone to perish, he has the power. He can do it. 
So no one will go to hell, right? But that's not the working out of his plan. That's not the way uh, he works it out. Now the problem with using this passage to deny election is at least twofold. The first is with the word anyone. Look at the same one in anyone. That word anyone is translated from the plural of a Greek word, this. T-I-S. This. That means anyone, anything, someone. Or may mean many a one or ten or even mean some. Some. Now these are possible meanings. So, in the Greek of the text of Second uh, Peter chapter 3, it is in the plural. The plural is used. So, it is best to translate it some or certain one. So, if you underline in your Bible or anyone, put something there. It should, be, it should really read either some or certain ones. Not anyone. Some or certain ones. So, that what we're saying is he's not wanting certain ones to perish or some to perish. It doesn't mean anyone, which we mean anyone with absolutely. Now, so we see then that the, the, the fact that what we're saying is that some here, or anyone here, should be translated certain ones. Now, this interpretation really is supported by the fact that the translators of the NIV translated the same plural pronoun some some as in the clause look at what it says some not uh, not uh, wanting uh, or not slow to, in keeping his promise as some as some understand slowness see that was some same Greek word translated anyone the next clause same Greek word. Same plural. But there they translated it with uh, some. Uh, so one wonders why they did not translate it some the second time the word appears. Granting that in some context, even within a sentence, it's possible to give two different meanings to a Greek word. But in this particular case, it's difficult to understand why they translate some the first one and the second one, they didn't they use anyone. And to me, that caused a problem. Most of our English versions uh, did that. And again, uh, as I've told you in the past, the English translators, some of them are mindful of their economics. So some of them try to keep as close as possible to the authorized version. The Kingian fashion. Because that's been what people have known for, you know, many hundreds of years. So people try, they, you know, the translator sometimes they try to do that. So that people won't just, oh no, no. They have just turned the Bible upside down. And so they're mindful of that. So I'm not sure, I'm not saying that's what made them do that. But we do know that some of them, they know that that's what the Greek ought to translate. But because it's popular, they leave it like that in their translations. That we know. Anyway, so that's 
the thing that uh, causes me to con- uh, raise that question, why would they uh, do that? Now, the, in other words, the inter- interpretation of the Greek word used that means some or certain ones, if that is what they had translated, that then reveals that those that will not perish are not humanity in general. As indicated by the word anyone, in other words, wanting anyone to perish. He said it will be wanting some or certain ones not to perish. See, that makes a whole lot of difference. If he says, again, not wanting some to perish. So if we use that, it begins to give a clearer picture of what Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9 is all about. Now the second problem is with the word everyone that is translated from the Greek word that we said means all, every, each or whole. Now the context suggests that it should be translated all and not everyone. Now remember now, we said if they took the first part, some ones, some or certain ones, then that this second one should be instead of everyone, all. And I'm going to be explaining why that is the case. So if this translation is followed, then it is easier to understand that all refers to some or certain ones that God is not willing for them to perish but to repent. See, that makes a whole lot of difference. In other words, these some or the certain ones that God did not want to perish are the elect of God. Because Peter mentioned the elect at the beginning of his epistle. So they are the certain ones, those certain ones, those some, all of them will not perish. That's what it is, you know, some, but they all refers to those certain ones. In other words, they are those God is not willing to perish, but to be saved. But in another way, see, for all the elect, will be saved, as implied in the reason Apostle Paul gave for preaching the gospel in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Now, I'm just trying to make the, this important point that all must be de- determined, the meaning must be determined by the context. By the context. Now, we know, as I've explained, that if we say someone's, and then uh, certain ones will say all, that all of those someone's, or certain ones. So here Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now you see, this is an interesting thing. He called them the elect, but they haven't yet been saved. 
Because that's what he says, that uh, I know everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain salvation. That means they, they have not been saved yet, but they are now called the elect. That means everyone who is of the elect will be saved. Those are the ones God is not willing for them, not, for them to perish. So if you understand that, when somebody shoots to you, Second Peter chapter, you know, chapter 3 verse 9, you cannot say, oh no, let me explain to you what it is. Oh, of course, I don't mean you get read about it or fight about it. You gently walk through the person, the argument we're given here. If you understand it, if you grasp it. Because some of you don't, really, you know, don't really care, you don't want to be engaged in anything that has to do with uh, dealing with the Bible. You're just content with, yeah, I know it, okay. And when you know it, and you don't uh, spread it to other people, you have failed in your responsibility. Because that's why you are called an ambassador of Christ. That's why you are called a witness for Christ. You have to tell others. Anyway, so the point we want to establish is that the Greek word translates all. In the literal phrase of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 23, where it says, all things are lawful, or in the NIV, Everything is permissible. That that word should not always, or the word all, should not always be taken in an absolute sense. But that it is the context that enables its interpretation. Let, let me illustrate from several passages in the scripture. Now when things are important, I go a long way to just keep hammering it in. Because all I'm trying to get to you is, when you read the Bible, you see, oh, don't always think it's all absolutely. Look at the context seriously. See if you can see what that all is telling you. doesn't mean all absolutely. Anyway, so let me illustrate this uh, from several scriptures. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ declared all things were committed to him by the Father in Matthew chapter 11 verse 27. Matthew. And hold on to Matthew. Matthew 11 verse 27 reads, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows his son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And look at the next thing. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. This is why sometimes I tell us, be patient with people. Even if they don't get it, be patient. Because it's unless when, when the Lord chooses to reveal something, a person can hear it, it's not ringing any bell. So we'll be patient. This is why it says, whom he chooses to reveal him. So it says, regardless of what these people, people say, well, I made a decision to follow Christ, I made a decision to be saved. No, you did not. It's God walking through you that made that possible. He, in other words, the Son chose to reveal the Father to you, or chose to reveal himself to you, so then you believed. Anyway, here, though, the phrase, all things, within the context, could refer to authority and power 
or, or, or it could refer to knowledge and teaching. That is, the Lord is saying that the Father has committed all authority and power to him, or that he has committed all knowledge and teaching to him. Now, so our Greek word is also used in reporting Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18, verse 26. Matthew. Chapter 18, verses 26, uh, verse 26. And this has to do with the parable of the merciful servant that uh, went to his servant. He was owing a lot of money. And more or less his master uh, threatened to throw him into jail. So to say, he went and pleaded. And the master said, okay, I forgive you. But then he goes, holds the other servant and his neck and choking him. You must pay me everything you owe me. That's the, that's the parable. That that's the context of this passage. Then he comes and says, The servant fell on his, uh, on his knees before him. Be patient with me. He begged, and I will pay back everything. Now, that, that word, everything, everything, may also be translated all things because of the Greek word used. Pass. So it should be, I will pay back all things. All things. That here though, once you see that word all here, it cannot refer to all in a total way, but it refers to the total death owed by the speaker. So you see that all is limited within the context. Look at the beginning of his gospel. Use that Greek word in Luke chapter 1 verse 3. Luke chapter 1 verse 3. Again, I'm going to keep re- emphasizing this until you get the concept. Hopefully, you, ca- you grasp what I'm emphasizing just that word all. How important it is. It is Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Now, don't let anyone ever downplay education. So important. Those who are highly educated, they approach things a lot different way, in every way. I mean, those you know, theologians who go to seminary and they eventually... Uh, get their masters and those of them who proceed to do their doctorate. They see things a whole lot different. They're able to do a whole lot more than others. So that's just what it is. You can uh, play it. So Paul, uh, here, uh, Luke, a trained physician, means he was a highly educated man. So what he did is, he said, he investigated everything from the beginning. It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now the word here, everything, may be translated all things. 
In other words, he would say, I have investigated all things. Well, that in the context refers to every available information or facts about the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So all things are limited to that one fact. Everything about the Savior, his work and everything. That's what he says. That's what I have investigated. Not everything in his absolute totality, so to say. Now, Apostle John used a Greek word also in John 1 verse 3. John chapter 1 verse 3. It's time for break, and after break we'll continue with that. 